welcome to episode 9 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where we look at the collapsing world around us and ask the question, how in this chaos are we supposed to live? Or maybe we should ask the related question, what kind of person should I strive to be in this chaos? The short answer is, a wise person. Wisdom requires knowledge, both of God and the world. Christians start with God and then examine the world in that context. This produces the wisdom of God, which is a wisdom that aligns our will with God's will and views world events in the context of God's great plan. Non-Christians start with the world and more or less ignore God, at least the real one. That produces the wisdom of the world, which aligns our will against God's will and views world events as a product of human ambitions. Those who feign to be Christians but are not also start with the world, but then they try to fit what they know of God into their knowledge about the world. This produces a slightly modified wisdom of the world that's salted with just enough God to make the God part pretty perverse. Now, I can testify that these three forms of wisdom all exist because, at one time or another, I have lived all three of them. But no matter which form of wisdom you subscribe to, you probably can see that events in the world are not going quite as swimmingly as we might like at the moment. I think most of us would agree with that sentiment, even if we disagree as to which things are wrong or why or how to fix them. But since this is a Christian podcast, we try to apply a strong dose of godly wisdom to our assessment of things. The current political crisis facing much of the planet, particularly the free world, is a confusing and threatening one, and America is right smack in the middle of it. We can see this easily because it's creating some unmistakable divisions in our society. It's almost like America is being deliberately divided so that each of us has to take a position on one side of this division or the other. Let's look at some examples. Number one, some of us see national boundaries as a problem and open borders as a solution. But the rest of us see unfettered migration as a problem and secure national borders as the solution. Two, some of us think there are only two genders, men and women. Some of us think that because God said so, and some of us think that because of, you know, our biology. But the rest of us insist there are scores of genders, if not hundreds, and it's impossible to tell which one a person has without asking them, or they, or Z. Number three, a large percentage of the population believes that fossil fuels cause anthropogenic, which is a fancy word for man-made, anthropogenic climate change, and therefore fossil fuels must be eliminated from the face of the earth. The other percentage believes that climate change is a natural process that's unrelated to fossil fuel use, and therefore we should continue utilizing the world's largest energy resource to do crazy things like grow food, build an economy, and, you know, keep people alive. Lots of people, number four, lots of people believe that we're in the middle of a devastating pandemic that's killed millions and millions and millions of human beings around the world, while lots of other people believe we're in the middle of the biggest health fraud in human history, one that leveraged the flu to create the impression of a pandemic. Number five, I'm going to go through ten just so you know, because these are really interesting. Number five, many people believe that emergency use vaccinations are a defense against said pandemic, while many other people believe they're unwise experimental agents, if not covert biological weapons. Number six, Half the people in this country cheer uncontrolled government spending, while the other half condemn it. Number seven, large groups of people want the Second Amendment repealed and guns confiscated from the populace. And equally large groups of people want it preserved, if not strengthened. 
Number eight, huge numbers of people champion government and corporate censorship of what they term misinformation, while huge numbers of people on the other side champion free speech. Number nine, large and vocal groups of people see endemic racism everywhere they look, and large and much less vocal people see race baiters pretty much everywhere they look. And finally, number 10, half the people champion the use of governmental edicts and decrees to solve perceived problems, while the other half view these same decrees as encroaching tyranny. Now, this list could be much, much longer, but these 10 items illustrate that we are fast becoming a divided nation of virtual, if not actual, enemies. And these 10 items, by the way, will feed into our future analysis of what's going on, which is why they're selected. Soon, if things don't change, we're going to be unable to coexist, meaning the two groups, because there will not be enough commonality between the groups to hold coexistence together. That's what happens in balkanized countries. You have a bunch of people who can't get along living together. It's coming down to a winner-takes-all situation. Countries that adopt a winner-take-all system inevitably produce societal hostility, violence, repression, and usually widespread death is what follows. So how is this happening in America? Who's doing all this and what's the point? Well, if you know the answer to those three questions, you're pretty far ahead of the vast majority of people in this country, and you might just manage to survive what's coming. But if you don't understand the answer to these three questions, you stand a very good chance of becoming a casualty. That's the nature of war, and you and I are in a war. Now, that should not be a surprise if you're a Christian, because the Bible tells us so. It tells us that there is a great war taking place, a war that transcends space and time, meaning it doesn't matter where we are on the earth or when we're alive. It's taking place at all times and in all places, and all of us are part of it. The nature of this war is that we inevitably fight for one side or the other, whether we want to or not, and whether we intend to or not, and even whether we recognize that we're participating in it or not. In other words, it's kind of a covert war that tries to disguise its operations so you don't notice. One side wants you to know there is a war taking place so that you will choose wisely about it, and the other side doesn't want you to know there's a war taking place so that you'll choose foolishly. One side wants you to participate with knowledge, and the other side wants you to participate with ignorance. One side is fighting so you can live, and the other is fighting so you can die. Permanently. But how can we tell if this is true? How can we know that what the Bible says is accurate? Apart from going back and listening to episode 6 of this podcast, if we are really participating in a covert war, then there are ways of perceiving it. I will assume that you want to know if we are in a covert war, because otherwise by now you would have shut off this podcast and go to listen to music or something. To perceive the operations of a covert war, there are three key terms that we absolutely need to understand. The first term is objective. All wars have an objective. The objective is the purpose behind the war. It's what the combatants are trying to win. There's one main objective, but there may be several subordinate objectives that are used to achieve the main objective. 
So if you know the objective, large or small, you know what's being fought for. You know that one side has it and the other side wants it because they're fighting over it. For example, most overt wars, ones we you know, notice, they fight over territorial control. The objective in a traditional war is to take and hold ground. That was the primary objective, for example, for Hitler in World War II. He wanted the Third Reich to take control of the entire world, so he started by taking Austria, then Czechoslovakia, then Poland, then Belgium, then France, etc. Achieving each sub-objective, winning control of each of the individual countries, would eventually produce the main objective, winning control of the whole world. Fortunately, he didn't get that far. Now, the second term we need to understand is strategy. A strategy is a plan or a set of guidelines that are used over time to achieve an objective. In the World War II example, Hitler knew that he could not defeat the Maginot Line when he invaded France. Now, if you don't know what the Maginot Line is or was, it was a series of fortifications that France constructed along the eastern border with Germany after World War I because they you know, didn't trust them. Instead of going up against that line of fortifications, the German strategy was to bypass the Maginot Line by invading the flat European doormat country of Belgium and then sweeping southward into France. It was a strategy designed to achieve the objective of conquering France. And it, you know, worked great because, gosh, why would Germany, if they're going to invade France, go through Belgium? Who would have thought? The third term is tactics. A tactic is a method of operation that is designed to advance a strategy or make progress towards a strategic objective. Tactics are tools that are used to implement strategies. For example, Hitler did not want France to redeploy its forces from the Maginot Line to the north when he invaded. Therefore, he attacked the Maginot Line to trick the French command into thinking that the main attack was going to come from there. The French command kept their best forces manning useless fortifications in the forest while the German army drove its tanks on highways from the north and right on into Paris. Deception is often an effective tactic to achieve a strategic objective. So now we can use this knowledge of objective strategies and tactics to understand the enemy's intentions and maybe resist them. And why should we bother to resist them? Well, we'll only want to bother if the objectives of the enemy are unacceptable to us. The Bible uses terms like odious and abominable to describe things that are unacceptable to someone, often God. For example, in Exodus 5.21, after the Egyptians turned their anger on the Israelites, the Israelites said to Moses, this is a quote, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, Moses, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Odious means arousing or deserving hatred. It means reviled, repulsive. It's a condition under which existence is increasingly intolerable. The Israelites were living under the harsh punishments of the Egyptians, and they resented Moses for bringing those punishments down on them. They were very harsh punishments, quite frankly, and they were physically unpleasant. Today, we would label any government that behaved that way cruel if it persecuted its citizens the way the Egyptians did. America hasn't experienced those kinds of conditions in a very long time. 
We've sent our young men out to fight wars over such conditions, but we haven't personally experienced them here at home since at least the Civil War, if not a lot further back than that. That makes many people think, today, that these conditions do not or could not exist here in this day and age. But the above examples of divisions among the American people, which are just a few of many, make it clear that such conditions can exist here and will soon exist here if the current problems continue without correction and especially as they get worse. Lots of people are going to be doing a lot of things that they think will help get things back to normal, but Christians aren't called to do what they think will help. Christians are called to discern the truth so that we can know what will actually help. And to discern the truth of what will really help, we have to understand the objectives, strategies, and tactics that are currently being used by the enemy. The first thing we have to do, once we suspect there's a war going on, is clearly identify who is the enemy. Who is it? What does God's word have to say about who our enemy is? Who is the top commander, the president, the premier, or the prime minister of the enemy forces? What clues can we glean from scripture about who this might be? Psalm 7.5 says, Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. The enemy here is the one who pursues souls and takes them. Now, people don't do that. So the psalmist isn't talking about a human being. What else can we learn about this enemy? Psalm 44, verses 15 to 16. My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the enemy and the avenger. This term, enemy and the avenger, are repeated in several parts of scripture and always refer to Satan as the enemy and the angel of death as the avenger. Now, we could argue over whether they are one and the same thing, but uh, for what it's worth, I don't think they are. I think the angel of death is an associate. Nevertheless, Satan is always called the accuser. He's, that's one of his names. Most clearly in Revelation 12.10, accusers reproach and revile with their voice, just as Psalm 44.16 says. Jesus himself weighed in on this issue of who our enemy is when he told the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to just briefly read three verses. Verse 25, But while the men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 28, He said to them, An enemy has done this. Not the guy that sowed the tares, but this is the person that's talking about it. Verse 39, the enemy that sowed them, the tares, is the devil. Well, you can't get much clearer than that. Jesus said, the enemy who sowed the tares, meaning, you know, something destructive that's in something useful, is the enemy. Uh, excuse me, is the devil. Now, the devil is Satan. So, here, Jesus clearly identifies the enemy as the devil and Satan. Then there's Paul's classic verse on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, 11 to 12. Actually, two verses. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In this passage, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual hosts in heavenly places are all descriptions of powerful angels who are not fighting for us. They're fighting against us. They're not on our side. 
They may work side by side with human beings. In fact, they do work side by side with human beings, but they are taking instructions from their leader, Satan. Now, those terms have a co-meaning in the human world, but that's a little other issue that we're not going to get into right now. For the purpose of this discussion, they also refer to the spirit world. So there you have it. Our primary enemy, the guy at the top, is Satan. All of the human beings who generate chaos are merely hired human help who, mostly in ignorance, implement the objectives of their spirit, lord and master, Satan. That makes understanding the objectives, strategies, and tactics of the enemy easier to understand since we now know who is directing the enemy forces. The objectives point to the strategies, which point to the tactics, which point to the lies and deceptions that God repeatedly warns us to avoid, which point to the people who deploy the lies and deceptions to implement the tactics to advance the strategies to attain the objectives. So now that we know that the main enemy is Satan, what are his objectives? Let's go back to the Bible and find out. Isaiah 14, 12-14, this is God speaking. How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations! For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. We don't have time to develop this section of scripture in detail, but here it is in a nutshell. God is speaking, and in this first part of the chapter, he is reminiscing about Satan's objectives in their conflict, the war we're in. Satan, who is otherwise known as Lucifer, has three principal objectives, as stated in the passage. First, he wants to exalt his throne. Let's break that down. A throne signifies political power, which is control over people and things. The passage says that Satan weakened the nations, which are made up of people, so that he could rule over them. They were weakened by that little incident in the Garden of Eden when sin was impugned to all people, and through sin we all fell under Satan's control. After weakening the nations, Satan exalts himself by ruling the people he weakened, making them do his will. So that's the first thing. That's how he wants to exalt his throne. Second, he wants to sit on the mount of the congregation. Presumably, he isn't allowed to sit there yet. Otherwise, why would he want to? The mount of the congregation is a council of spiritual beings, angels, who oversee the affairs of people on earth, including other angelic beings who operate here. This is a very complex and controversial part of Scripture, primarily because God doesn't give us a lot of detail on how this council operates. What God does tell us is that Satan wants to take a position on the council, but not an ordinary position. He doesn't just want to be one of the guys. He wants to be on the farthest side of the north, meaning he wants to be at the head of the table. That is the position of power and prestige he wants to lead the council. Third, Satan wants to ascend above the heights of the clouds. Now, this is not referring to floating water vapor, but to the clouds of God, the visual manifestation of God when he makes an appearance on the earth. 
God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. All manifestations of the cloud, otherwise known as the Shekinah glory, involve the worship of God. So, in other words, Satan wants to be worshipped like God. He can't be God, but he can be worshipped like God. So, those are his three main objectives. So, to summarize, Satan wants to secure absolute political and personal control over people and things. In other words, he wants to rule the earth. Number two, he wants to secure the top position on the council of angels that oversee the affairs of the earth and of the angels on the earth. In other words, he wants to rule the council. And three, he wants to be worshipped as God. Now that we know his main objectives, we can move on to the strategies that he uses to secure these objectives. Now, Satan is obviously an angel. He's not a material being. As an angel, he's enormously powerful and is given tremendous authority by God, but he's handicapped in a way because he has no material form. Therefore, he must work through people who do have a material form. Satan can do this because people have spirits and souls, both of which are non-physical spiritual components of our being. Therefore, he and the other demonic entities have a means to directly connect to us or with us. This is the primary mechanism that he uses to establish operational control over the earth. There is a connection between the spirit world and the physical world, and it works through people. That's the other component of the verse that we read earlier about powers and principalities. There are parallel people to the spirits. In other words, parallel leaders. Satan uses Satan, and Satan in this case refers not just to Satan the individual, but to Satan, think of it as Satan the spirit nation or Satan the spirit army. It refers to the collective organization that's working for Satan. So that's how most of the time that I'm using it. Satan uses people as tools to express his will. The degree to which Satan can make people conform to his will depends on how much ground he holds in them. Remember, one of the main purposes of war is to gain and control ground. In the spirit world, the ground they're trying to gain and control is found within human souls. When we sin, we give a foothold to Satan and his spirit army inside our soul. It's an entry point that can be exploited. How much influence Satan or his demons have over us depends on how much ground they hold in our soul. It's kind of like Hitler when he first came to power. Germany was weak militarily, but on March 7, 1936, Hitler boldly sent his weak army into the Rhine River Valley to reclaim some land that had been lost to France after World War I. When his entrance wasn't resisted by the French, Hitler was emboldened to strengthen his army and take more ground, including France itself, in May of 1940. It was a very short four years from defeated foe to conquering master. Demons work through human beings in a similar way. Sin is their entrance, and the soul is the ground they're trying to conquer and hold. The more ground they hold, the more influence they will have over the person. The only protection we have from demonic infiltration comes from God, and He only extends that protection to those who trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ.
That's why Christians are so universally reviled by non-Christians who are controlled, to one degree or another, by Satan. To the degree that Satan has control over the inclinations of a person, that's the degree of malice and hostility that person probably feels towards all true Christians. Now, there are many fake Christians, too, but that kind of malice does not really extend to them nearly as strongly as it does to true Christians, because fake Christians serve Satan's purposes, too. It's the human heart that is the power center of our soul. Remember, we talked about that in a previous episode. It's the human heart that generates and motivates our thoughts and desires and behaviors. So, Satan's main objective is to conquer our heart, or our hearts, plural. That's why we've been advised by God to guard our hearts and our minds, which are, you know, extensions of it. Proverbs 4.23 and Philippians 4.7. The best way to guard our heart is to get a new one in the act of baptism by the Holy Spirit. When that happens, God owns our heart and his protection extends around it. An important concept to remember is that all spiritual action centers around our hearts. Satan's strategy is to secure or conquer our hearts. Once he or his demons have control of a heart, a person's heart, not the physical heart, but the spiritual heart, he can do the following things. He can exercise physical influence over the associated body either directly or indirectly, forcefully or imperceptibly. Either way, it gives him access to physical materials through the body. Remember, the body, the spirit, and the soul are one. So if he gets a foothold in the soul, guess what? He's got a foothold in the body too. He can influence a person's mind so that that person will start thinking about and obsessing over things that the demon, and this is, remember, it's not really Satan, it's really his demons, whatever it is they want him to think about and obsess over. He can influence the soul to induce a whole range of negative destructive emotions or worshipful emotions, but of the wrong thing. So control of a human heart is real power. So it's no wonder that his human lieutenants want this power as well. That's a very interesting statement, by the way. And we'll get to that later. Keep that in mind, though, when we talk about these things. That's also the objective of some human beings. The Bible makes it clear that we will do the will of whoever controls our heart. In a long exchange with the religious experts of the day, Jesus made this point very clear. I'm going to read a little bit longer section of past scriptural passage because it's very pertinent to this idea. This passage starts with Jesus addressing the Pharisees, the intellectual elites who are already plotting to kill him. This is John 8, verses 37 to 44. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, this is Jesus speaking, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered, they being the Pharisees, and said to him, Abraham is our father. Abraham being, you know, the descendant, that they, the person they descended from, their most, you know, famous ancestor. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, 
which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. Now, they were referring to the public slander that the Pharisees loved to levy against Jesus, claiming that he was an illegitimate child because his mother Mary had him out of wedlock. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Holy Spirit and everything. We, this is the Pharisees continuing to speak, we have one Father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And that's about as crystal clear as it can be. Human beings act out the attitudes, desires, and thoughts of the external spiritual force that drives them. What Satan desires is political control, spiritual control, and worship. The practical outworking of these desires is clear from Scripture. In other words, we work out Satan's desires. We, those who are under his influence, not we, the Christians. We work out God's desires, the Christians. But non-Christians work out his desires, whether they know it or not, in practical ways. So, this is the, these are the practical ways they work it out. First, they're going to help him attain political control in the future that will be a single world government run by a single ruthless dictator that the Bible refers to as the man of perdition or the man of sin, the beast, the antichrist. He will be the complete opposite of Jesus Christ. Second, Spiritual control will be established in the future through a single worldwide religion headed by the lieutenant of Antichrist that the Bible refers to as the false prophet. That will be a world, there will be a worldwide religion that will be enforced on everybody. Third, worship of Satan will be established in this future dystopia in two ways. There will be direct worship of Satan by those who practice Satanism and indirect worship of Satan by those who worship his human proxy, the Antichrist. Fourth, in order for Satan to be elevated above the clouds of God and be like God, all traces of the worship of God have to be erased from the earth so that only Satan is worshipped. This means the outworking, the Antichrist will have to eliminate everyone who worships Yahweh God, the true God, and that's all true Christians and Jews. That's what his army is going to be busy doing. Fifth, once this God equivalence is established, Satan will claim his right to rule the council of angels as the sole and supreme agent of worship on the earth. So now we know biblically the objectives of Satan and some of the strategies he's going to use to achieve them or to try to achieve them. Now, that brings us down to the practical level of tactical implementation that will advance these strategies and objectives. And this is where the divisions in the country and the problems we're experiencing in the world 
come in. When we understand the tactics, we'll understand the true nature of the battle we're in. So, again, why should we care about any of this? It's because God needs us. Don't fall for the old lie of pacifism, believing that God has everything under control, so we don't need to do anything but go up on our rooftop and wait for the rapture. That's a lie, and it's a deception of Satan. Not that God doesn't have everything under control, that part's true, but the most effective lie is one that's mixed with some truth, isn't it? God works his will in the world the same way that Satan does. He works it through the actions of human beings. If Satan killed every human being, God's will would be foiled because there would be no human beings to work out his will. And, you know, we're on earth. This is the battleground. We are the mechanisms of the war that are taking place. He needs to work through us just like Satan does. It's a contest between the two of them, believe it or not. The Bible doesn't say anywhere that we are to go hide on the roof and wait for the rapture. It doesn't say, let go, let God, or whatever that ridiculous phrase is. It says, be watchful. It says, don't be deceived. It says, be courageous. It says, go, act, make. These are commands, not passive platitudes. We need godly wisdom to do any of these things if we want to advance God's agenda. He invites us to participate in this struggle so that we will share in the victory with him in the end. He does not ask us to win the war for him. He just asks that we participate. Here is a practical example of how and why. If you knew that your sweet little niece, nephew, grandson, or granddaughter, or your child was facing imminent, preventable death or prolonged agony at the hands of a deceiving stranger, would you just say, let go, let God? Or would you choose to act? Would you be courageous? Would you do whatever it took not to let the deception happen? Of course you would, because you love that child and would want to protect that child. We are all God's children, and God expects us to do the same for anyone when we wake up and see the world for what it is. When we see it the way he sees it. The practical implementations of Satan's tactics and the inevitable consequences that those tactics are going to have on the world if they reach their fulfillment. Actually, they're going to have an effect on the world and they're not going to reach their fulfillment. But nevertheless, they're all visible around us. All of those effects either are developing now or will be soon developing all around us. We just need to see them for what they are. Then the only question really is, what should we do about them?
is a clip of a brand new release by Chris Norman. Pick it up, it's going to help him out. In the meantime, we'll start identifying those tactics and rolling out the response during the next episode. Now, if you found this podcast interesting, useful, important, or even a little bit ridiculous, but at least entertaining, please recommend it to your family and friends. Give it a thumbs up or a smiley face or whatever else that app you're using has to encourage others to listen. Remember, this is not a commercial enterprise, as I'm sure you can tell, and I'm not a professional podcaster. I'm just one person doing what I can to hold back the darkness. There is no budget for this podcast, so it's limited to what I can invest from my regular job and responsibilities, both in time and money. That's why it does not get posted as regularly as I would like, if you were wondering. Hopefully, God will allow me to keep this podcast operating for a while and, with his help, maybe grow it a bit. Please pray for me and for it to be influential in the lives of people. Underground Christian can be heard on several platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, and Listen Notes. I'm still trying to get it on Pandora, but, you know, 9 out of 10 isn't bad. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. I will respond as soon as I can. If you wish to help with the podcast, please let me know in an email. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and if it's in your heart, make yourself available to do the work of God. If it's not in your heart, all you have to do is ask God. He will give you a new heart. Isn't that easy? 